Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Disability Study Channel at New Book Network. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Philip Kirby to join us to introduce um, his recentest book, uh, The Lazier. So now I want to invite you, Dr. Kirby, to introduce uh, yourself to our audience. Yes, thank you, Shua. It's nice to be here. Uh, so my name is Philip Kirby. So I'm a lecturer in the history of education. Uh, in the School of Education, Communication and Society at King's College London. Uh, And principally, my research looks at the history of specific learning difficulties. Uh, So in particular, on the history of dyslexia and the history of dyspraxia. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Kirby. Thanks for your answer. So my next question is that, uh, what's the reason you take interest in, I mean, the field of disability study or dyslexia studies? Yeah, so this project that we're talking about today, so the history of dyslexia. So this started at the University of Oxford in 2016. So this was a project that was organized by uh, Professor Maggie Snowling there, who's a uh, psychologist and she specializes in uh, dyslexia. It was an interdisciplinary project. So we also had historians, we had Professor William White also involved in the project, uh, and Professor Kate Nation as well, who's another psychologist. So originally I was the a postdoctoral researcher on that project. So that's how I first became uh, interested in this area. And then after I left Oxford and moved to King's College London, I carried on working on the history of dyslexia. Uh, and that's where the book, Dyslexia and History, uh, which I published with Maggie Sm- Snowling at the end of last year, uh, that's where the book emerged from. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. So let's begin talk about your book. My first question is that I want to invite you to talk about the dyslexia's Victorian beginning. Yeah, so dyslexia has a very interesting origin story. Uh, so the first term and the first individual we need to talk about is a German physician called Adolf Kussmaul. So he first coined the term word blindness in 1877. So he was the first really to identify reading difficulties and difficulties with identifying a written word 
kind of in isolation from other types of difficulty. Now, there's some controversy over whether exactly he was talking about dyslexia or if he was talking about kind of other difficulties. But that's really where the story of dyslexia starts with that of Chris Mao and this term word blindness. A few years later, so six years later in 1883, uh, another German physician called Rudolf Berlin, uh, he coins the term dyslexia, meaning difficulty with words. Again, there's some controversy over that period and whether they were actually talking about what we would understand to be dyslexia today. But certainly the terminology around this area originates at that time in Germany. Uh, what happens then is this is kind of fading of interest in dyslexia in Germany uh, at the end of the 19th century. But British researchers and physicians and ophthalmologists and other people start to become more and more involved. So a key figure here. Uh, is a gentleman called William Pringle Morgan, who was a physician from Seaford, Sussex, on the south coast of England. Uh, and he publishes an account of a boy called Percy uh, in 1896. And this account of Percy uh, very much is a description of dyslexia as we would understand uh, the term today. Okay, thank you so much for your talk about origin of dyslexia. So my next question is that I want to invite you to discuss the most important figures in the study of the late, sorry, this late year between the 1920s and the 1930s. Yeah, so this is another interesting aspect of dyslexia's history. So we have this kind of explosion of interest in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So we have these doctors in Germany and in Britain who are starting to do research on dyslexia. Then there's this kind of lull in interest uh, in, I suppose, kind of the 1920s and 1930s, especially in the UK. Uh, in the UK, I think one of the reasons for that is that there was a very prominent educational psychologist uh, called Cyril Burt, who was very influential in psychology at this time in the UK, and he was very much against the term dyslexia. Uh, he didn't really think that it existed. He thought that the kind of difficulties that people with dyslexia had could be resolved by better teaching. So I think he casts a shadow over dyslexia research in Britain uh, in the early part of the 20th century. But there was uh, interest in dyslexia elsewhere, and in particular, uh, Samuel Orton in the United States. Uh, so Orton, again, was a psychologist who was interested in learning difficulties, and he did a great deal of research in dys on dyslexia in the 1920s and 1930s. It was big survey-based research, so he started to get a sense of how common dyslexia was uh, in the population at large. So although there was this lot in interest in Britain and in Germany in this early part of the 20th century, Samuel Orton in America really keeps alive dyslexia research in the 1920s and 1930s. Thank you so much again for your answer. So my next question is about the formation of the first dedicated this, sorry, dyslexia organization in Britain, the World Plan Center for Dyslexic Children. Yeah, that's right. So, again, we have this London interest in Britain in the first part of the 20th century, although elsewhere in the world, such as in America, there is still attention to dyslexia. But there's this kind of resurgence in interest in Britain in the 1960s. And this really coalesces, as you say, around this organization called the Word Blind Center. So this opened in Bloomsbury, in the centre of London, uh, in the early 1960s, and it really coalesced the interests of an international array of researchers on dyslexia at this time. So 
there were Britons working on dyslexia who attended the Word Blind Center. There were American researchers, researchers from Denmark and from France and elsewhere. And the Word Blind Center was kind of a research organization. So it hosted conferences for international researchers to talk about uh, dyslexia and the evolving and emerging research on dyslexia. But it also started to try to help children who had dyslexia. Uh, so over its existence, which was about 10 years from the early 1960s to 1970s, it saw several hundred children and it started to try to find ways uh, that those children could actually be assisted with their difficulties. So what kind of strategies might help them with their reading and spelling? And so the Word Blind Center uh, and the director there was a lady called Dr. Sanja Naidu, I think was very, very important in crystallizing interest in dyslexia uh, in this period, so in the 1960s into the 1970s. Thank you again for your answer. So my next question is about the history of dyslexia science from the period of the World Brain Center onward. So a question about the history of the science of dyslexia. Is that right, Shu? Yeah, that's your question. Yeah, so again, I think an interesting story about the history of dyslexia science is actually how much of our current definition of dyslexia has actually gone before. So even if we go right back to the Victorian period, and we look at British researchers like James Hinsherwood, for example, William Pringle Morgan, who I mentioned earlier, and others, that there was already an understanding at that time that, number one, dyslexia was not the fault of the individual child. So it was nothing that they were doing. It wasn't the fault of their teachers necessarily. It was something that was kind of biologically based. So it was a difficulty that they had, and they weren't responsible for that difficulty. So that was an important thing that they were doing right back then. Something else that was important at that time is right back in the 1910s and 1920s, I think there was an understanding that dyslexia was a phonological difficulty. So it was a difficulty in breaking words down into their smallest components, their phonemes. And so it was a difficulty kind of with breaking the code of language. So again, we think of that as being quite a modern finding in the history of dyslexia science, but actually that was known about right back at the beginning uh, of the 20th century. Uh, so for example, it was identified right back in the 1920s that uh, a child that had dyslexia in Germany was perhaps uh, less disadvantaged because German is a more kind of transparent orthography. It's spelt a little bit more like it sounds and it sounds a little bit more like it's spelt than is, for example, English, which is a bit more complex. So it's more difficult to have dyslexia in English. So I think that's one of the most interesting things from a historical perspective about the history of dyslexia science is actually how much was understood right back uh, in the early decades of the 1900s uh, and is still current in dyslexia science today. Okay, thank you so much for your answer about the science of dyslexia. So my next question is about how the sorry dyslexia was institutionalized in Britain and how an initial infrastructure for the support was created. Yeah, so the book mainly focuses on how uh, kind of civil society developed an interest in dyslexia, and like you say, in Britain. So we really only looked at the case study of the British experience, and there will be differences in other parts of the world. Certainly in Britain. In the wake of the Word Blind Center, which closes down in the early 1970s, we start to see kind of dyslexia charities and dyslexia organizations 
founded. So a core one here would be the British Dyslexia Association, which was founded in 1972. Many of the people that worked there also worked at the Word Blind Center. The Dyslexia Institute, for example, was founded around the same time. The Helen Arkell Dyslexia Center and other organizations. And what they really started to do, which hadn't been done before, is they campaigned for state recognition of dyslexia. So they lobbied policymakers, uh, they talked to parliamentarians and to civil servants about dyslexia, and they tried to get dyslexia on the political map. And the reason that they did that was because they realized that uh, small charities and small organizations could only ever help so many children, a very small number, perhaps hundreds or at most thousands. Whereas if they could get state recognition of dyslexia, then you could start to have support for people with dyslexia rolled out right across the country. Uh, and they were largely effective at doing that. So by the 1980s, the late 1980s in the UK, you start to see governmental recognition of dyslexia. And after that, uh, kind of much more broad-based support for people with dyslexia was forthcoming. So thank you again for your answer. So my last question is about the campaign for political recognition, sir recognition of dyslexia in Britain and which was built on sorry, which built on this expanding dyslexia infrastructure. Yes, yeah, so although the dyslexia charities and other organizations were ultimately successful in getting dyslexia recognized by government, that wasn't necessarily an easy process and there was quite a lot of pushback. Uh, so you see right from the 1960s onwards into the 1970s and even into the 1980s kind of concerted pushback from policymakers and civil servants uh, saying, for example, that dyslexia doesn't exist or the science is still muddy around dyslexia. So we need to wait for that science to solidify before we can actually provide support. And I think the reason that policymakers were so reticent to engage with dyslexia was because of the expense that would be incurred actually rolling out proper support for children across the country. Uh, so I have one example here that really illustrates this reticence of government uh, to actually engage with dyslexia. So in the early 1970s, uh, Baroness Warnock in the UK was asked to write a independent report on the state of special educational needs in the UK. Okay, that was her remit. Uh, and uh, she wanted to include information and guidance around dyslexia in that report. But... Uh, so this is a quote from Baroness Warnock. The hostility in the Department of Education to this concept was manifest by the instructions we were given when we were set up at the beginning of 1974. When I was summoned by the person in the department who was responsible, he said, you understand your terms of reference? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, you must understand that you must not suggest that there is a special category of learning difficulty called dyslexia. So even right up to the late 1970s and into the 1980s, there was this skepticism from government around dyslexia and these dyslexia organizations and charities were having to try to overcome that skepticism so that they could actually get dyslexia recognized. Okay, thank you again. Thanks for your answer. So um, I very appreciate you coming to our podcast today, Dr. Kirby. So I very appreciate that. So at the end of our, I mean, our talk today, I want to talk. To, I want to recommend this book. I mean, Doctor Snowling and Doctor Kirby's newest book, 
dyslexia a history to all of my audience who take a strong interest in the history, dyslexia history or Britain history, history of medicine and disability. Which this book is one of the best book about the issue of dyslexia and especially its history. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shu. Thank you for those kind words, and it's very good to speak to you.